Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so excited to be here. Lord, the band just brought us to the very throne room. And we're grateful, Lord, for your presence in this place. And Lord, for what you want to accomplish in our very midst. God, I pray that you would give us boldness and you'd give us courage to be the people you've called us to be. That we would no longer make excuses. Lord, even when you don't make a lick of sense to us, Lord, that we would be obedient and do what you would have us to do. God, speak to every individual life in this room and at home. God, help us to understand your plan, your purpose, and your way of developing our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. We're so glad that you're with us today. We are in the middle of a series called The Hall of Faith. We've been looking at different individuals in the Bible who had extraordinary faith in God, and God rewarded them for their faith. And today we're going to talk about Joshua. One of my favorite movies when I was a young man was The Karate Kid. Now, I'm not talking about the remake. That was stupid. I'm talking about the original Karate You saw the remake, didn't you? That was a waste of 10 bucks, wasn't it? How many of you like the original Karate Kid? Just out of curiosity, Cobra Kai fans out there? Yeah, Cobra Kai back in the house. It's a good time. Um, I love that movie. I mean, we got it on DVD uh, years ago. We rented it because I wanted my kids to see it. I thought there was a lot of great lessons in Karate Kid. I want my kids to see it, uh, but I watched it with my kids, and there's a lot of cussing in the Karate Kid. I, I, it's weird when you watch it with your children, you all of a sudden, whoa, I didn't realize that was when I was back in my day. And so I can't, I can't recommend the Karate Kid for your family, uh, but, but I, I do want to show you a clip. Oh, I'm just kidding. I, I feel conflicted, to be honest with you. I, I, I want to tell you the story about the Karate Kid, maybe save you an hour, 40, hour, and 45 minutes, all right? This is how the movie Karate Kid goes. There's a young man by the name of Daniel. He comes into a brand new town. For some reason, I don't fully understand it, he gets bullied by a bunch of guys. Well, he decides that he needs to go get some defensive techniques taken care of. He needs to learn how to defend himself. So he goes to a dojo, to a karate studio, hoping he can learn karate. But wouldn't you know it, all the kids who've been bullying him are already taking classes at this particular dojo. Well, one too long after that, Daniel goes to one of these parties at the school, and he decides to play a prank on the bullies, and the bullies don't appreciate that at all, and so they chase after Daniel, and they find him in the middle of a field right by his apartment complex where he stays, and they just beat the spit out of this poor kid. Good news for Daniel is he made friends with a maintenance man named Miyagi. He jumps over a fence and beats up all of the bullies. When Daniel finally comes to him since again, wakes back up again, he asked Miyagi to teach him karate. Well, reluctantly, the Miyagi says that he will, tells Daniel to come over to his house the next day. So Daniel comes over to the Miyagi's house the next day, and the first thing the Miyagi says, he says, I want you to paint the fence. That's what he wants you to do. And a long fence all the way around the backyard, he said, paint the fence. Well, it took Daniel several days to paint the fence. We got the fence done, then Miyagi said, I want you to sand the floor. And Daniel's like, this is not making sense to me at all. I came over here to learn karate, and all I'm doing is his household chores. But he told him, sand the floor, sand the floor. So he does that for several days. And then the next task is for him to wash the cars and to wax the cars. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. You remember it, don't you? You remember the movie. And so Daniel does this. Well, he's been working for this guy now for a week or two, and he's just sick of it. So one night, he gets really mad at the Miyagi. He says, this is ridiculous. All I'm doing is all your household chores. And in profanity-laced tyrant, he just chews the Miyagi out. And then all of a sudden, the Miyagi tells Daniel before he walks away, he says, get back over here. And then Miyagi says, show me, paint the fence. And so Miyagi throws a punch at Daniel, and he blocks it with paint the fence. 
And Daniel's eyes are like as big as they can possibly be. Like, what, what just happened right there? And so then he says, show me sand the floor. So he shows him sand the floor, and he blocks the kick. He says, show me, wax on, wax off. So Daniel does it, and he blocks into the punch. And Daniel's like, wow, I can't believe I was learning karate. Didn't even know I was learning karate. And then Miyagi goes crazy. Daniel's like, right? You remember? Then they get done. You remember, then they get done, and, and they bow down to each other. He says, always look eye, always look eye, right? That's what he said. Daniel walks away, just, just bewildered. He's like, I can't believe that just happened. Why am I telling you that long story? Well, friends, listen. Daniel did what didn't make any sense, and because he did, he became the All-Valley champion, and he got the girl in the end. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God kind of is your Miyagi, isn't he? And a lot of times, he's going to ask you to do stuff that makes sense. I mean, he's going to ask you to do things that make no sense at all. But if you'll be obedient, if you'll do what he asks you to do, you will live the abundant life that you always dreamed that you could live on this earth. But friends, for you to do this, you've got to push past your fear. Because every time God comes to you and says, this is what I want you to do, this is what I want you to be about, and it doesn't make any sense to you, fear is going to get the best of you. You're going to say to yourself, this doesn't make any sense. This, doesn't, this isn't right. I, if I go this direction, that doesn't, isn't the way that I should go. But if you'll do it, if you'll stop questioning the wisdom of God, if you'll stop questioning the will of God, if you'll just do what he asks you to do, even when it makes no sense to you at all, you will live the life that you always wanted to live, a life of adventure, a life of purpose, a life that matters, a life that counts. you got to push through your fear, and you got to be willing to look foolish. Mark Batterson, in one of his books, he writes this great paragraph. He says, it's the fear of looking foolish that stops us from asking the pretty girl out on a date. That's true, isn't it? It's the fear of looking foolish that may have kept you from changing jobs or changing majors. People will think, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. It's the fear of looking foolish that caused you not to pray a big, hairy, audacious prayer and ask God for a miracle for fear that God wouldn't come through for you. But here's the deal. If you're not willing to look foolish, you're foolish you got to push through the fear and say, okay, no one else is going this direction. No one else is going this, this path, but that's where God wants me to go, so I will be obedient. We come from a long line of people who are willing to look foolish. Don't you think Noah looked foolish? I think Noah looked foolish building an ark 120 years, 500 miles away from any body of water. I, I think Sarah looked foolish after God told her she was going to have a, a baby at the age of 90. I, I think she looked foolish going to the grocery store and, and getting maternity clothes and depend diapers at the same time. Don't you think? I didn't make, make her look foolish. I think Moses looked foolish when he walked into Pharaoh's court and said, let God's people go. I think David looked foolish as a snot-nosed kid when he ran onto the battlefield to take on the giant Goliath. I think the wise men look foolish when they traveled over 900 miles to follow yonder star. I think Peter looked foolish when he said to Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come walk out on the water with you. 
I think Jesus looked foolish hanging from a cross, don't you? But the results of looking foolish are amazing, aren't they? Noah was the one who was saved from the flood because of the ark. And and, uh, uh, Sarah was the one who got the promised child and got to enjoy watching Isaac grow up. Moses was the one who led the children of Israel to the very cusp of the promised land. And David, well, David showed everybody how to get ahead, didn't he? When he killed Goliath and chopped off his head. And the wise men, they were the first ones to bow before baby Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and worship him, giving him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And Peter, well, he got to walk on the water, didn't he? And Jesus might have looked foolish on that cross, but three days later, he didn't look foolish anymore, did he? When he stepped triumphantly out of the empty tomb. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Friends, I'm telling you right now, there's going to be thousands of times throughout the course of your life when God's going to say, this is what I want you to do, and it's not going to make any sense to you, and then you're going to have a choice. Is fear going to win, or is faith going to win the day? Now, no person in the Bible did more things that made no sense at all than Joshua. Let let me set the story up of Joshua chapter 1. Moses is right now, before we get into the passage we're looking at today, Moses is leading the children of Israel into or at the very cusp of the promised land. This is 40 years earlier, and God told Moses, grab 12 of the heads of the tribes of Israel, send in spies to check out the promised land. So they picked the best of the best. And those 12 guys go in, their job is to come back with a report and tell them how wonderful the land is. And they come back 40 days later, and 10 of the 12 spies say, man, the land is great. It's flowing with milk and honey, but there's a couple of problems. One, the land devours the people living in there. And not only that, but there's giants in the land. And we seem like grasshoppers compared to them. Only Joshua and Caleb, two of the 12 spies, believed that God could do it. They're like, come on, guys, you got to be kidding me. If God can provide for us in the wilderness, if God can separate the Red Sea from one side to the other where we walk across on dry land, God can give us possession of the promised land. Well, you know how a fearful report goes. It's like the media today. Let's just put as much fear out there as we possibly can. And so there was fear throughout the camp, and so everybody began to say, you know what? It can't be done. God can't do it. And God came to Moses and said, the people don't think I can do it, huh? He said, okay, that's fine by me. I won't do it. They don't want to go in the promised land. It's too land devours people. It's giants in the land. Okay, that's fine. They won't set a pinky toe in it. Moses, for the next 40 years, are going to wander around the desert, and every one of these people is going to die. Only Joshua and Caleb and their children can enter into the promised land after 40 years. And Joshua and Caleb, how they spend the next 40 years, burying, digging one grave after another, burying one person after another. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, of the consequences of not being faithful. It's the consequences of not doing what God has asked us to do. Well, Joshua chapter 1 opens up. And if you're doing the daily devotionals, this is where you're going to start reading this next week. It's Joshua chapter 1. And so God comes to Joshua, kind of gives him a pep talk says, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promise Moses. I will give you every place. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. I think Joshua was scared to death, don't you? I mean, four times in this passage of Scripture, God says, be strong, be courageous. Why is he so afraid? Because the task ahead of him is enormous. Let me give you two reasons why he's afraid. One, he's following Moses. Moses is dead. Moses, if you take all the people who have ever lived on the face of the earth and all the history of mankind, Moses is one of the top 10 leaders you're going to find. It's one thing to follow a terrible leader. It's another thing to follow a world-class leader. And Joshua's concerned. He's like, I, God spoke to Moses. People listened to him. I'm not sure they're going to listen to me. Not only that, but Joshua knows as soon as he leads these kids, these slave children, into the promised land, that there are seven enemy nations in that promised land. And when they set foot across the Jordan River, it is an act of war. And every one of those nations is bigger and better and tougher. They've all got armies. And what's he got? He's got nothing but a bunch of slave kids. So God knows that he's scared. He knows that he's afraid. So God says to him again and again, you be strong. You be courageous. Now, just a couple of verses. God says it's go time. But before he wants him to go and sharpen his swords and sharpen his arrows, God wants Joshua to spend some time with him. Joshua 1 verse uh, 7 says, Be careful, Joshua, to obey all the law my, my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Notice God doesn't say, hey, Joshua, we're heading into the promised land. Sharpen your bows and arrows. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, man, you're heading into the promised land. You're going to go to war. You make sure your spears are ready to go. Make sure your knives are ready to go. Make sure the people, make sure the warriors are ready. God doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, Joshua, it's time for us to head into the promised land. But before we head into the promised land, I want you to spend some time with me. I want you to meditate upon my word. I want you to meditate on it day and night because it'll give you peace in the midst of the storm. It'll give you calm in the midst of the chaos. I want you to spend time alone with me. This is one of the most embarrassing stories I'm ever going to tell you in the history of our church. Are you ready for it? Years ago, I was a student pastor in Missouri, and I was sitting in my office, minding my own business, when my secretary intercommed me, and she said, I think one of your teenagers is trying to play a prank on you. I said, really? They said, yeah, because they say that they're calling from the White House, and they want to talk to you. I said, oh, this should be good. Let's find out what this prank is about. So they transferred the call. I picked it up. And there was a nice person, a nice girl on the other end. She explained who she was, how she was the secretary at the White House. This was during Ronald Reagan's presidency when they had the Just Say No to Drugs campaign. 
She said, you, you uh, oversee a large student ministry, and the president has heard through his advisors about your student ministry, and he would like you to serve on the National Council for the Just Say No to Drugs Committee. I said, sure he would. She said, no, he really would, and he'd like to fly you out. We're going to have a breakfast in just a couple of days. He would love to have your presence at that breakfast. I said, okay, well, send me a ticket, and I'll be there. They said, fantastic, and we hung up the phone. Now, I was waiting for the call back when they would say, ha, 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 that was funny. That was a good joke, right? But I, 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 didn't, I didn't get a call like that. In fact, the next day, a courier came to the church and delivered me a ticket to Washington, D.C., and I knew that it wasn't a prank because none of my kids could afford a ticket to Washington, D.C. I mean, that would be taking this thing a little too. And I was like, I, 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 I'm going to be on the Just Say No to Drugs National Council. This is, this is amazing. We, we, we were freaking out. It was incredible. Well, the day came for the flight. And so I got on board and, and, I, and I flew to D.C. The ticket was legit. And I got to the other side and, and I got off the plane and there was a guy with a placard, my name on the placard. I mean, I am a superstar. What can I say? It's right there. And so I said, well, ask me. And they drive me to my hotel, and they got an itinerary ready for me to, to look at. And it says, so I'm going to have breakfast with the president at 6 o'clock in the morning. And then afterwards, they're going to give me a White House tour. Well, you ever had that moment in time when you have something going on the next day and you're so excited about it that you can't go to sleep, you know? So I, I can't go to sleep. I'm just tossing and turning my bed. I'm just having, I'm going to be with the president of the United States. I'm going to have breakfast with the president. This is Ronald Reagan. This is incredible. So I finally fell asleep about 2.30 in the morning. Now, I could have sworn that I set the alarm. The phone rang at 6.30 a.m. And that nice woman said, where are you? And it was then that I realized that I had just slept in on the president of the United States. I miss it all. I miss it all. I miss the president. I miss the White House tour. I missed it all. Now, I got to be honest with you. That story never happened, okay? Let's go ahead and be honest with you. And if you believe that story to be true, you might be the reason we had a Just Say No to Drugs program in the first place, all right? I mean, come on. They're not calling me. Think that through. But you gasp when you heard that I slept in. I heard some of you say, oh, no. <laughs> right? I gotcha. Here's my question. I wonder if the angels in heaven gasp when we blow God off. I mean, because of the blood of Jesus, you have entrance into the very throne room of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we sleep in. Day after day after day. We never find any time to be alone with him. Don't even do the daily devotionals. Never crack open the Bible. Never spend some time praying a big, hairy, audacious prayer. And you wonder why you're bored. You wonder why there's no more adventure in your life than what you currently have. You wonder why things aren't happening for you. Why God isn't intervening in your life. Friends, God's doing what you expect him to do. If you expect him to do great things, he's probably doing great things in your life. Expect him to do nothing, guess what? That's what he's probably doing. He says to Joshua, he says, listen, before we head out onto the battlefield, get along with me. You, you do understand, don't you, that life is a battlefield? 
and that every day you go out there on your own, in your own strength, in your own power, in your own wisdom, no wonder we're the walking wounded. No wonder we're so overwhelmed. We have the power of God's word that we can meditate and memorize and internalize. And yet we don't have time for that. He says, Joshua, before you go into battle, before you cross the Jordan, spend time memorizing, meditating upon the word of God. Now let's fast forward in the story. We're now up to Joshua chapter 5. This is the time that Joshua is most concerned. The, the, the walls of Jericho, the, the town of Jericho, in his mind, is going to be the most difficult task that he has. To defeat Jericho, because it has fortified walls, is going to be very, very difficult. And so he's getting ready to, to find out what the military plan is from God as to how they're going to attack those walls, how they're going to get those walls down, how they're going to attack that city. And God comes to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5, and he says, listen, before we go deal with the city, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites. What? What? Yeah, before we go into battle, I want you to circumcise the Israelites. Now, let me ask you a question. You're getting ready to go into battle. Do you, do you, do you really want to do that to your warriors? Do you, do you think that's a good military plan uh, to do that to, to them? I mean, I got circumcised when I was a kid. I couldn't walk for a year. I waited all week to tell you that one line right there. I waited all week. My wife said, don't do it. I said, oh, no, I'm doing it. It's gold. That's gold right there. Circumcision was a big deal in the Old Testament, right? I mean, that was the covenant that God had made with Abraham. They were to be set apart. They were to be consecrated for the things of God. And during the 40 years that they're wandering around the wilderness, nobody was circumcising anybody. And God says, wait a second, before we go do this, I want you to be sanctified. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be consecrated for my work. So I want you to get flint knives, and I want you to circumcise the Israelites. Think that made any sense to Joshua? Lord, Lord, we're getting ready to go into a great battle. I don't know if that's a, a, a good idea. Joshua didn't say any of that. He said, that's what you want us to do. That's what we'll do. And they circumcised them. Now, thankfully, they waited a few days before they healed up. All the men can uncross their legs. Now we'll move on. <laughs> now it's go time. They're going to take on Jericho. Talk about not making sense. Let's look at chapter 6. The Bible says, now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. So, so Joshua gets alone with God and he says, okay, what, what, is, what is the military plan? What, what do you want us to do? How are we going to take on the fortified city of Jericho? God says, all right, write, write this down. On the first day, I want you to walk around the walls of the city, and then I want you to go back to camp. Joshua's like, all right, that makes sense. That's a reconnaissance mission. We'll do that for sure. All right, what do you want us to do day two? God says, day two, I want you to do it again. Day three, do the same thing. Day four, day five, day six. Joshua's, all right, all, all, all right okay. And, and then what do you want us to do? On day seven, Joshua says, yeah, day seven. On day seven, I want you to march around seven times.
March seven times? Day seven. Seven times. Say seven. Okay, well, what do you want us to do then? He said, then. Yeah, okay. What do you want us to do then? The, the priest will blow their trumpets. We'll march around seven times, priest, priest blow their trumpets. Okay. And, and, and then what? And then scream. Then what? I'll do the rest. Would you do it? Talk about looking foolish. And, and, and then you as Joshua, get this, have to go back and tell your commanders that this is the plan. Can you imagine that conversation? You walk in and say, I've, I've just been alone with God, and I've got the plan. We're going to march around the city one time and go back to camp. Okay, then what? We're going to do it six more days in a row. One time, we're going to camp. Okay, then what? Then we're going to march around seven times. Yeah! Then we're going to have the priest blow the trumpet. Yeah! Then we're going to scream. Then God will do the rest. Don't you think the leaders are like, has he been smoking some hippie hay or something? That doesn't sound like much of a military plan to me. Doesn't make any sense. How many times in your life have you heard so, something that God tells you to do doesn't make any sense and so you blow it all? You remember the first time you heard how a person can get to heaven? Didn't make any sense to you, did it? Because your whole life you've believed what? You've believed you have to be a good person to go to heaven. You've always believed that. Sometimes you even fall back into that trap, right? Hear about somebody dying, well, I'm a pretty good person. I hope they're in heaven. Not about your goodness, though, is it? What you find out is that your goodness isn't, isn't, isn't good enough. You don't get to heaven based on your goodness. You get to heaven based upon the goodness of Jesus. What do you have to do to be a Christian? What do you have to do to go to heaven? You have to admit that you're a sinner, and pretty much everybody understands that they've blown it, that they've rebelled against God, they've hurt someone else, they've hurt themselves, right? That's not hard to convince people that they've sinned. But the Bible says you've got to repent of that sin. You turn away from that sin. You say, you know, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to do that stuff anymore. Then you've got to believe some things. You've got to believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. And most people believe that to be true. And then the preacher says, listen, you got to commit your life over to Jesus. Everything you are, everything you hope to be, you give it over to him. He leads you and guides you and directs you from this day forward. That's it. Pray this prayer. Ask Christ in your life. Boom, chakalaka, you're a Christian. Going to go to heaven. Not because of your goodness, not because you're religious, but because of what Jesus did on the cross for your sins. Didn't make any sense, did it? Some of you right now, you've never asked Christ in your life because it doesn't make any sense. You still think the good works plan's going to get you there. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You don't get to heaven based upon what you did. You get to heaven based upon what he did for you. You accept the payment that he paid for your sins, a payment that was so great you could never pay for it yourself. And all you have to do is admit that you're a sinner, believe Jesus is God's son, down on the cross, rose again from the dead, and commit your life over to him. And you still won't do it because it doesn't make any sense to you.
Isn't that the craziest thing? Let me give you another one that's making sense to a lot of people. Tithing. So you become a Christian, and, you, and you, the preacher says, you know, now that you're a Christian, you want to fund the mission and the ministry of, of, of Jesus' message. You want to be used in a way that we can leave this world in better shape than the way that we found it. So we're supposed to give 10% of our income to the things of God, to the kingdom of God. Now, some of you brought a friend this week, and you're like, oh, crud. He's talking about money again. That's not good, man. My friend says all the church ever talks about is money. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're watching me flipping through the channels, can I just tell you something? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this doesn't apply to you. I don't care about your money. Keep your stupid money. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you signed on, friend, to fund the ministry and the message of Christ. You, you say, oh my goodness, Todd, I, 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 that doesn't make any sense to me. I, 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 I keep the 100% and I can barely pay my bills. Now you want me to give 10% away? I'm going to go so deep in debt, I don't know what to tell you. Well, this is what I would tell you, friend. I don't understand it either. But when you tithe, God stretches that 90% farther than that 100% you hoarded. And it doesn't make any sense it's an act of faith it's oh man I, I, I can't do it i can't do it i can't do it i would have to rearrange my whole life to do that isn't that kind of the point you, you you see when you become a christian it's no longer the world revolves around you now it's your world revolves around jesus it's about re-looking at your priorities and what you're really living your life for, who you're really worshiping, what's really first in your life. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of faith. And around here, you got no excuse. We have a 90-day money-back guarantee. You didn't know that, did you? But on the website, you type in 90-day money-back guarantee, and you'll get a form that you can fill out. You put it in with your first tie check or the first time you set up online push pay. If God's not faithful over 90 days, we'll refund all your money, no questions asked. It took the elders all of 10 seconds to decide to do that. You know why? Because God's faithful. And even though it's making sense to you, I'm telling you, I'm living proof of it. And so are hundreds of other people, thousands of other people in our church, that it works. So I can't afford to tithe. <laughs> you sure about that? You got, you got a health club membership? You go out to eat a lot? You got a smartphone? You got a data plan? You got high-speed internet? You got it. It's just, it's still revolving around you rather than revolving around him. I get it. Doesn't make any sense. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I'm telling you, you'll get yourself it's so messed up financially because when you ask God to be infused in your finances, he will do exceedingly, abundantly more than anything you've ever dreamed or imagined. And this isn't that health, wealth, prosperity gospel. This is just the truth of God's word. God says, test me in this and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven for you. Let me give you another one. Doesn't make any sense. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That one ticks a lot of people off. I can't, I can't forgive them. I can't love them. Are you kidding me? I can't do that, Todd. That's impossible. I want to get them back. I want to hurt them worse than they hurt me. We'd rather get revenge than offer forgiveness. There was a lady, and she asked a, a painter to paint a portrait of her. 
And she said, when you paint the portrait of me, I want you to put all my jewelry on there. I want diamond necklaces and diamond rings and brooches and all that. Just load me up with jewelry. And the, and the guy painting the portrait said, I, I don't understand. You don't have any of this jewelry. She said, I, I know. But I got a feeling that I'm going to die before my husband. And I know he's going to marry somebody. And I want her to go crazy looking for that jewelry. So you liked that one, didn't you? Sinner, sinner, chicken dinner. We want revenge. We want to get them back. We want to get even. Oh, let's be honest. We don't just want to get even. We want to hurt them a little bit more than they hurt us. So let's say you do. Let's say you do get them back. Let's say you do hurt them a little bit more. Let's say you even kill them. <laughs> You satisfied yet? Probably not. Look at this video of a woman who wrote a letter to her pastor about the bitterness and the rage that she had against her ex-husband. Take a look at this. I caught my husband making love to another woman. He swore it would never happen again. He begged me to forgive him, but I could not. I would not. I was so bitter and so incapable of swallowing my pride that I could think of nothing but revenge. I was going to make him pay and pay dearly. I'd have my pound of flesh. I filed for divorce, even though my children begged me not to. Even after the divorce, my husband tried for two years to win me back. I refused to have anything to do with him. He had struck first, now I was striking back. All I wanted was to make him pay. Finally, he gave up and married a lovely young widow with a couple of small children. He began rebuilding his life without me. I see them occasionally, and he looks so happy. They all do. And here I am, a lonely, old, miserable woman who allowed her selfish pride and foolish stubbornness to ruin her life. Unfaithfulness is wrong. Revenge is bad. But the worst part of all is that without forgiveness, bitterness is all that is left. Doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to forgive them. Okay, don't. Then you become the bitter, angry, resentful person, and all your relationships begin to fall around you. Or you let it go at the foot of the cross. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I've just picked on you about three things. How many more things in the Bible does God come to you and say, I want you to do this, but it doesn't make any sense, so you don't do it. You blow it off, you ignore it. And you know what ends up happening? We end up living a less than kind of a life. What Joshua would do? Because I promise you what God asked him to do didn't make any sense. I want you to walk around one time, come back seven days, seven times. Then I want the priests to blow their trumpets. And then I want you to scream and I'll do the rest. You know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that Joshua was obedient even though it didn't make sense. He marched around seven times. The priests blew the trumpets and they all screamed. And the walls miraculously came down. And I want you to know something. This isn't some fairy tale or some fable. You can fly to Israel if you like and you can see the walls. We found them. You can Google it if you like. About 25 years ago, I got the opportunity to go to Israel. I stood right there where all those walls came down. The stones are still there scattered throughout the countryside. 
And I said to myself, I said, self, I said, yeah, when I was there. I said, this stands as a testimony to anybody who dares to look foolish. This stands as a testimony to anybody who dares to do what God wants them to do, even when what God's asking them doesn't make any sense. What's God asking you to do today that doesn't make a lick of sense to you? Do it. March around. Have the priests blow their trumpets and you scream and shout hallelujah as God tears down the walls surrounding your life.